1: It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Insight Hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Insight Hour
0: Tonight, I'd like to finish the discussion we began last week on mundane right view, and then examine the liberating aspect of this first step of the Noble Eightfold Path. So the last two statements the Buddha made regarding worldly right view first affirms that there are beings who are reborn spontaneously in other realms. And then the second statement is that there are in the world wise and virtuous people who have realized the truth through their own direct experience. So regarding the first of these, that there are beings who are reborn spontaneously in other realms, we spoke last week of staying open to the possibilities at least of things beyond our direct experience. In the Buddhist teachings, we're not at all enjoined to blind belief. But it's also helpful, as we mentioned, that it's good not to be attached to blind disbelief. That is, understanding that there are things beyond the realm of what we now know, and that it could be helpful to at least stay open to the possibility of them. The last aspect of mundane right view is one that I find particularly relevant now in our own Western culture. That is that there are wise and virtuous people who have realized the truth for themselves through direct experience. As most of us know, as a society, we don't generally recognize wisdom as a cultural value. You know, we value talent, we value wealth, we value looks, occasionally we value intelligence. But I haven't seen any magazine covers dedicated to the wisest person of the year. You know, there's the sexiest man alive and the most beautiful woman alive. But where's the wisest person alive? And in some way, I think our egalitarian values, which are so important, but sometimes they might diminish the understanding that there actually are people who are wiser than we are people from whom we can genuinely learn something about how to live in a way that's in harmony, in a way that's in accord with the truth. So when we acknowledge this, which is what the Buddha is saying in the last part of this worldly right view, that there are beings who have realized for themselves, through their own experience, the truth, the nature of the Dhamma. When we acknowledge this, it also keeps us open to wisdom from unexpected sources. And we learn to listen for that voice of genuine experience, rather than being influenced either positively or negatively by personality or position. I've had a number of experiences you know, in my life, where real wisdom is coming out of some pretty unpleasant personalities. You know, and the reaction, the first reaction is, oh, somebody we don't like, they're abrasive, one thing or another, and we pull back and we tend to discount what they say. But if we stay open and are just listening for that authentic voice... You know, is this true? Does this make sense? It keeps us open to learning from a wide range of people and situations. And by recognizing that there are wise, awakened beings in the world, it helps us reaffirm that this is a possibility for ourselves as well. Yes, awakening is possible. We can actually develop our wisdom, our understanding. So we can practice the various aspects of mundane right view in different ways. some may be very obvious to us, like the practice of generosity that we spoke about, you know, an understanding that it has power, that it bears fruit. Or by investigating our motivations and practicing acting on those that are wholesome and abandoning those that are unwholesome. Other aspects of right view may not be immediately apparent. So we might want to experiment a bit. You know, it's, it's almost as if we try them on for size, seeing how they affect the quality of our lives. For example, what would it be like and what influence would, have, would it have on our lives if we really entertained the notion of rebirth of other lives? Even if it's something we don't really know, we're not sure about, we may even be skeptical of it, but it's part of the teachings, what would it be like just to consider it? How would it affect us? Just as a simple example of this trying on for size, I found that being open to this teaching of rebirth, not knowing, you know, not being able to say for certainty that it's true, but being open to it and considering it, it's taken a certain pressure off of my life. You know, within the realm of the mundane of worldly happiness, I no longer feel that compulsive need to fulfill every desire or to accomplish every goal. If not this life, maybe next life. You know, and time is going by so fast. It's like our whole life, and sometimes it just feels like a long weekend, You know, and if I don't become an expert skier this time around or whatever our particular desires are, you know, then this time. Okay, well, we'll do it next time around. This way of seeing things, this way of holding things, allows us to prioritize what seems most important. You know, when we consider all the possibilities of what we can do with our lives, Not feeling that we need to accomplish everything, or need to do everything that comes up in terms of our desires. It allows us to prioritize and say, well, what's really important? Let me give attention to the most important, without feeling that I'm missing out on something, you know, or losing something. And so, it all gets much more relaxed. course as we begin now the discussion of super mundane right view or what could be called noble right view we'll see that re- real freedom lies in letting go of all craving you know, all desire for acquisition all desire for becoming that mon- super mundane right view is about cutting through that great Gordian knot of self. So noble right view or awakened right view is described in two different ways in the suttas. First, it's described as a particular function of the mind, namely the mental factor of wisdom. Now, In the Abhidhamma, the Buddhist psychology, Wisdom, or in Pali it's called Panya, is one of the 25 beautiful mental states. And just that, I love that translation of when the Buddha is describing, you know, what's wholesome, he talks about the beautiful mental states. And it really suggests to us that we begin to appreciate those qualities in our own minds, the beautiful qualities. So the function of Panya, the function of wisdom, of this beautiful quality, is to illuminate what is arising so that we can know and understand things clearly. We can see things clearly, know things as they are. So the functioning of wisdom is likened to turning on a light in a darkened room. We turn on the light and everything in the room is illuminated. Wisdom, this wisdom factor, is the factor of mind that enlightens us, that awakens us. And in the great list of the 37 principles of enlightenment, wisdom appears in four different groupings. It's so important it appears in the five spiritual faculties and the five spiritual powers you know which is faith or confidence energy mindfulness concentration and wisdom it appears as one of the seven factors of enlightenment you know and in that list wisdom is called investigation of states investigation of the dhamma so it, be, it serves as a clue to us in terms of okay, how does wisdom function? By investigating, by illuminating what's so. And wisdom is this part of right view, which is the fourth, first step on the Noble Eightfold Path. So one way we can understand awakened right view is as this wisdom factor. The second way, noble or supramundane right view is described, is in terms of its objective content, that is, what does wisdom discover when it illuminates our experience. So it's not only the function of investigation, it's also about what we learn, what we understand. In one sutta, Saraputta, the great chief disciple of the Buddha, He described 16 different ways of understanding right view, you know, in terms of craving, in terms of dependent origination, in terms of contact, in terms of feeling. It just goes on and on. The Buddha is so clear in describing the importance of this. He said, Bhikkhus, there is no single factor so potent in promoting the good of living beings as right view no single factor so potent as promoting the good of living beings as right view so it's worth our attention now can we learn to understand it and develop it in the satipatthana sutta which we've been discussing This liberating right view refers specifically to the understanding of the Four Noble Truths. As Buddha says, what bhikkhus is right view? It is the understanding of suffering, dukkha, its causes, its cessation, and the way leading to the cessation, the ending, the putting down of suffering. So we begin with a conceptual understanding of the Four Noble Truths. You know, we use our intellect, we use our intelligence to begin to learn, to study, to understand what these Four Truths are. And then through practice, we gradually deepen our intuitive, direct, immediate realization of them. So in this way, we could see right view as both the beginning and the end of the path. We start with, that, with right view. It sets the direction for us. So our practice is leading us in the right direction. And then the whole path culminates in these understandings. And it's mindfulness of the Four Noble Truths, which is in fact the last set of instructions in the Satipatthana Sutta. This is what the Buddha ends with, after all of the different elements of mindfulness of body, of feelings, of mind, of all the different categories of experience. He ends this very powerful discourse, instructing us to be mindful of these four truths. So we've already discussed the first three of them in previous talks tonight I'd like to review and highlight just a few key elements of them as they pertain to the right view of the awakened mind. So we've all experienced the truth of suffering. Somebody just told me another translation of Dukkha, which is very hard to translate. And so when you hear suffering, you really need, Perhaps we should just use the Pali word of Dukkha because it means so many things. It means things are unsatisfying or stressful. And so the, the translation somebody just told me about, uh, he said somebody had suggested that it means dysfunctional. You know, the things just don't quite fit together the way we'd like them to. Okay, so Dukkha means all of these things and all of us have experienced this Often in our lives, we certainly experience dukkha in terms of the body. You know, it gets older, it gets sick, eventually it dies. We know of the suffering of the mind in terms of all the afflictive emotions that can arise. Fear, anger, jealousy, despair, envy, hatred, boredom, restlessness. You know, there's a long list of emotions and mind states that are afflictive. They afflict us. They're uneasy. Association with the unpleasant is dukkha. Separation from the pleasant is dukkha. Not getting what we want is dukkha. We're all very familiar with these experiences. And then the Buddha summed all of this up in just a single phrase which is even more fundamental and comprehensive and it, it's a phrase that highlights the extent and subtlety of our wrong view. The phrase the Buddha uses to illustrate or to describe this first truth, noble truth of Dukkha, it really brings into stark relief our wrong view of things. And he said, in brief, the five aggregates of clinging are suffering. The five aggregates of clinging are dukkha. So what does this mean? And that's just a very few words that encompasses so much. Because these five aggregates, which constitute everything we claim as being self, Now the material elements called Rupa and Pali, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness, all, each of these five aggregates, and in combination, they're all in constant, rapid change and flux. In fact, they're changing much more quickly than we usually even perceive. And because this nature of them is to change and change so quickly there's nothing in the nature of the aggregates which constitute all of our experience there is nothing in their nature that can provide a place of peace of rest of security that really are a refuge and the more we cling to that which in its nature is subject to change and dissolution, the more we suffer. You know, it seems so obvious (laughs) if we're holding on to what in its nature is going to change, the more tightly we grasp, the more we suffer. But even though it seems so clear and so obvious, the pattern of clinging is very strong. Forms, sounds, tastes, odors, tactiles, and all mental objects, this is the terrible bait of the world with which the world is infatuated. But when one has transcended the mo- But when one has transcended this, the mindful disciple of the Buddha shines radiantly like the sun, having transcended Mara's realm. And I just love that phrase, the terrible bait of the world. You know, it's like the world's going by and every little experience has a hook on it. And we're like fish, you know, biting on this and biting on that. So there are just a few examples of this out of innumerable ones you know, that so affect our lives, but I just wanted to make a little concrete. As I said, there there are many, many examples, but in a very simple way, especially living here in New England. You know, if we're attached to summer, to nice, warm, sunny weather, how do we feel in the dead of winter, you know, when it's freezing and icy? If we're attached to summer, we're going to be miserable in the winter. And many people are. If we're attached to looking and feeling young, how do we feel as the body ages? How much energy does our society put in to feeding this desire? In terms of advertisement, in terms of products, in terms of production of things, all devoted to holding on to a particular form of the body that's attachment to the first aggregate attached to the pleasant feeling we get from looking young that's attachment to vedana to the second aggregate attached to the perception of youth it's the third aggregate it really struck home for me personally I haven't had a beard since I was in my 30s and just on the last retreat, I just thought for the fun of it, I'll start growing a little beard and I was shocked to see how white it was as it grew out and there was that moment, (laughs) do I want to do this? (laughs) Attachment to perception. Attachment to the third aggregate. Attachment to all the volitions and mental states you know, to accomplish it, an attachment to or identification with the one knowing all of this. So right in this very simple and rather common example, we see dukkha, in short, the five aggregates subject to clinging. What is so amazing is that even in the face of recognizing impermanence. You know, because this is not an esoteric hidden truth. It's not like some mystery that things are changing. We all know it, we see it you know, around us and in us. So even in the face of something so obvious and so apparent, what's amazing is that the habit of clinging remains so strong. you think we would learn, but as we all know, it takes repeated practice to see this again and again on deeper and deeper levels. Now what feeds and nourishes this habit of grasping is one particular kind of wrong view. And it's a view that keeps us bound to samsara keeps us bound to this wheel of becoming. And in Pali, it's called Sakaya Ditti, or wrong view of self. Sometimes that Sakaya Ditti is translated as personality view. Now, it's easy to think of this, you know, this wrong view of self, as a basic Buddhist philosophic principle. It's a basic part of the Buddha's philosophy, but if we think of it in that way, we can miss the critical importance that it plays in our lives. This is what the Buddha said, he said, Bhikkhus, I see nothing so blameworthy as wrong view. Wrong view is the most blameworthy of all things. Bhikkhus, there is no single factor so responsible for the suffering of living beings as wrong view. So this is not about philosophy. This is about understandings that condition how we live and how we act. This is a matter of critical importance if we're on a path of happiness if we really want to be happy and awake in our lives. So why is the Buddha making such a strong declaration about this? Because so many of our unwholesome actions, with their attendant karmic results, are born from this wrong view of self. As long as this view is the central understanding of our lives, as it is for most people. This, This strong reference point of self is the central understanding of how most of us live. Then we spend an endless amount of energy trying to gratify the self, defend it, hold on to it, protect it. And all of this very potent karmic activity, is revolving around something that isn't even there. So this is the great power of delusion in our minds. As I mentioned earlier, sometimes wisdom comes from very unexpected sources. So this little piece of wisdom comes from a mystery novel written by John Burdett, who wrote these series of novels, mystery novels set in Bangkok. So they all have a kind of Buddhist flavor. So this is a little bit of Panya from John Burdett. You see, dear reader, speaking frankly without any intention to offend, you are a ramshackle collection of coincidences, held together by a desperate and irrational clinging. There is no center at all. Everything depends on everything else. Your body depends on the environment. Your thoughts depend on whatever junk floats in from the media. Your emotions are largely from the reptilian end of your DNA. Your intellect is a chemical computer that can't add up a zillionth as fast as a pocket calculator. And even your best side is a superficial piece of social programming that will fall apart just as soon as your spouse leaves with the kids and the money in the joint account, or the economy starts to fail and you get the sack, or you get conscripted into some idiot's war, or they give you the news about your brain tumor. To name this amorphous morass of self-pity, vanity, and despair, self, is not only the height of hubris, it is also proof, if any were needed, that we are above all a delusional species. We are in a trance from birth to death. Prick the balloon and what do you get? emptiness. Take two steps in the divine art of Buddhist meditation and you will find yourself on a planet you no longer recognize. Those needs and fears you thought were the very bones of your being turn out to be no more than bugs in your software. That's really all we need to know. <laughs> But in more classical terms, (laughs) this is what the Buddha had to say (laughs) about this wrong view of self. Suppose bhikkhu, a dog tied up on a leash, was bound to a strong post or pillar. It would just keep on running and revolving around that same post. So too, uninstructed worldlings regard form as self, feeling as self, perception, volitional formations, consciousness as self. They just keep running and revolving around form, around feelings, around perceptions, volitional formations, around consciousness, and they keep on running and revolving around them. As they keep on running and revolving around them, they are not freed from them. They are not freed from birth, aging, and death, not freed from sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair, not freed from suffering. So that image is very powerful for me, you know, just a dog tied up, you know, to a post or a pillar, just running around, not being freed from it. And the Buddha is saying, that's just what we're doing, as we cling to the five aggregates. We're just running around, clinging to them, and thus not freed, from the very characteristics of those aggregates, birth, aging, all the afflictive emotions not freed from suffering. Now here the Buddha is laying out so clearly the first two noble truths, suffering and its causes. And it's helpful to remember the Buddha's charge to us regarding these truths. He said the truth of suffering is to be understood. And the causes of suffering are to be abandoned. So how do we go about accomplishing this and realizing this for ourselves? Realizing for ourselves the third noble truth, which is the end of suffering, the putting down of dukkha. It's this realization, it's this direct experience, direct intuition, which takes us from the conceptual level of understanding, from worldly right view, to what the Buddha calls the right view that is noble, taintless, supermundane, a factor of the path. So the instructions are so clear. You know, as, although as we know, they require great patience and perseverance. Really to integrate them fully in our understanding and in our lives. Here's where the Buddha told us precisely what to do. He said, Bhikkhu, whatever is not yours, abandon it. When you have abandoned it, that will lead to your welfare and happiness. Suppose because people were to carry off the grass, sticks, branches, and foliage in this Jetta's grove, which was a grove that Prince Jetta had uh, offered to the Buddha and the Order of Monks and Nuns. Suppose because people were to carry off the grass, sticks, branches, and foliage in this Jetta's grove, or to burn them, or to do with them as they wish, would you think people are carrying us off, or burning us, or doing with us as they wish. No, venerable sir, because those things are neither ourself, nor what belongs to ourself. So then the Buddha goes on, and this is so incisive, if we can really practice it. So too, bhikkhus, form is not yours, feeling is not yours, perception is not yours, volitional formations are not yours, consciousness is not yours. Abandon it. What you have abandoned that will lead to your welfare and happiness. So, what does abandonment mean? It means not being identified with it, not claiming it itself. And this is a very interesting practice to do. You know, it's, again, it's not. This is not about Buddhist philosophy. It's about how we're relating to the constituent elements of our experience. On my last retreat, I just. A little while ago, finished a, a seven-week self-retreat, and this phrase came to mind. And many times, especially when I felt my mind being caught in one thing or another, I would remind myself of this teaching. You know, form is not self, perception is not self, feelings are not self. Not I, not mine, not myself. and as i would remember that and apply that you know we can we can feel just the release the relaxation of the heart so this is the underlying context for whatever particular practice you may be doing does it serve and enhance samaditi you know this noble right view right view of non-self So we can open on deeper and deeper levels to the direct experience of this most easily through refining our awareness of the impermanent changing nature of the five aggregates, of each one of them. Again, the aggregates being a shorthand for everything we experience. Everything that we experience is included in the five aggregates. So we begin to deconstruct the concept of self, first by seeing, being mindful of what is actually arising moment-to-moment and then investigating through Panya, through wisdom, really illuminating the momentary, fleeting, insubstantial nature of these very experiences. Now, there are different ways of going about doing this. You might spend some sustained periods of time focusing on a particular aggregate, just to play, to experiment. So you might choose for a period of time just to focus on the body, rupa, the physical elements, being as continuously aware of the body as possible. You know, and it might be the breath, It might be sensations in the body. It might be the movement of the body, the changing of postures. But you're really directing your attention in a sustained way just to mindfulness of the body and really seeing how it's continually changing. Whatever it is that you're aware of is in constant flux. You might focus for some time on the impermanent nature of feeling, the second aggregate. You know, recognizing just moment after moment that characteristic quality of the experience. Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Is it neutral? Really highlighting that flavor of each moment of experience. Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Is it neutral? And seeing how that too is in constant flux. The more we experience the impermanence of these experiences, the less we cling to them, the less we take them to be self. We can pay for some time particular attention to perceptions, the third aggregate, which is the recognition and interpretation of objects, different objects of the senses. And we begin to see through mindfulness of perception, That how we perceive things strongly conditions how we feel about things and how we think about things. So perception is a very powerful formation for us. So I'll just give you an example of how different ways of perceiving things can really change how we feel. Uh, years ago this this happened many many years ago when I was first beginning teaching was out in California was teaching up in the Redwoods teaching a retreat and I was sitting just before the early morning sitting I was sitting with uh, Sharon Salzberg one of my teaching colleagues and we were sitting in our room just you know waiting to go into the hall and just in a moment I burped a cloud of smoke and ash. This whole cloud of smoke and sweet-smelling ash came out of my mouth. It was very weird. I mean, it was it was really weird. It's like, what is this? Yeah, and she could see it. There were like little particles of ash. So it was pretty strange. But what to do? We had to go sit. A couple of weeks later, this was in 1975, we were back in Maine, beginning the teaching of our first three-month retreat up in Bucksport, Maine. And before the course started, I went into the bank to cash a check or something, and right in front of the teller, I was right at the teller's window, (laughs) again, this the cloud of smoke and ash comes out of my... Very strange. So then... I realized what is this? So I started asking around. <laughs> <laughs> and there aren't too many people you can ask about this. But at that time, Ramdas was studying with this teacher in New York, Joya. And there was a whole scene around this quite psychic woman. So I had somebody ask Joya about it. And she said, Oh, that's the verbudi, the it's like the holy ash of Sai Baba, who's one of the great saints in India he kind of psychically or magically produces ash, you know, which he gives to people, and that's holy ash. Oh, holy ash. <laughs> <laughs> the the verbudi of Saipa, I felt great. That was, that was a really good feeling. <laughs> Months later, Munindra, my first Dharma teacher, uh, was here, and I asked him about it. And he said, oh, it is the fire element. Well, that felt kind of neutral. You know, it didn't, didn't make me happy, didn't make me anything. Okay, the fire element. Then sometime after that, I was with Deepama, you know, a, a wonderful teacher from from Calcutta. And I told her the story, and she said, Oh, you must have some disease.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: that didn't feel so good. <laughs> Same experience, different perceptions create very different mind states, very different stories, very different <laughs> feelings. All coming from this aggregate of perception, how we recognize and interpret things. You know, and we get so lost in the world of our perceptions and interpretations, even about very ordinary experiences in our lives, just getting lost in the endless stories, you know, we create about ourselves in the world. How much of the day are we living in this dreamlike nature of thoughts? I know you've all had the experience because it's a common meditative one. You know, the mind getting caught up and lost in thought, lost in some story and some plan and some memory with all kinds of attendant feelings and emotions. And, and then in a certain moment, we awaken from being lost and realize... There was nothing there. That was just like an empty thought passing through the mind. But we invested so much in it and were so caught by it. So we really want to pay attention to that moment of awakening because it highlights for us what the nature of perception is. And we can learn to recognize that aggregate and not cling to it. It's tremendously freeing. We can practice, so we can practice for some time just being mindful of the body in its different manifestations. Maybe for some time practice just watching feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Maybe for some time practice just watching the perceptions, the way we're recognizing, interpreting things. Can also practice a sustained mindfulness of the mental formations. You know, all the moods, emotions, mind states, reactions, and even meditative states of calm, of peace, you know, that arise. Remembering that all of them, whether they're pleasant, whether they're unpleasant, all of them are not self, are not me, are not mine. That's the wisdom we want to apply to our experience of each of the aggregates. That's where the freedom is. So we're not just running around the pillar (coughs) attached to the suffering inherent in the arrogance. And this is the tremendous liberating power of mindfulness. We can be mindful of them, seeing them with wisdom, or we're not mindful of them, caught up and bound. And on the most subtle level, we need to cut through the identification with consciousness, not not creating a haven for wrong view by taking consciousness or the knowing faculty to be self. The instructed noble disciple, disciples do not regard form as self, not feeling as self, not perception as self, nor volitional formations as self, nor consciousness as self. They no longer keep running and revolving around them. As they no longer keep running around them, they are freed from them, freed from birth, aging, and death, freed from sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair, free from suffering. So again, the instructions are very clear. And on a conceptual level, I think it's very clear. But we need to train our minds. We need to actually put it into practice. So there's another way we can practice. In addition to perhaps, if it's of interest to you, taking some sustained periods of time with each of the aggregates, one way that I was experimenting my own retreat I started just over a period of time on a moment-to-moment level paying attention to which of the aggregates came into the foreground of experience so not predetermining what I was going to pay attention to not having an agenda but just going through the day and noticing in different experiences and in a rather moment to moment way oh which of the aggregates in this moment is in the foreground so for example you know you might be walking outside and you're just feeling the sensations of the moving you know so that's mindfulness of the aggregate of form you know rupa the, the physical elements you know you might feel the warmth of the sun or maybe a cold blast of wind. That's also the physical elements. So you recognize that. Oh, This is this is this first aggregate of material elements. But then, in a moment, the feeling of pleasant or unpleasantness may may just come into the foreground, may become predominant. You know, you feel the blast of cold, and you really feel it as unpleasant. Or you feel the warmth, and you feel it as pleasant. So you recognize that. Oh, that's the feeling aggregate. Maybe you hear a sound and you recognize it as a bird. You know, where you see something and you recognize it as a tree or a building or a person. You know, that moment of recognition and even perhaps subliminal naming, that's perception. So I was just doing walking meditation. All of this is so simple. It's just just doing it. (laughs) You know, I was just doing some walking and... I heard a car in the distance, and I could just see my mind just in the moment, this hearing, and then, car. Yeah, and I was just paying attention and really noticing, oh, which of the aggregates? Oh, that's perception. And it got interesting simply to watch the interplay of these five aggregates. So it goes from being kind of an abstract teaching really to help us understand what our experience is, how it's unfolding moment to moment. You know, so we have a momentary perception of what's arising. And then, you know, you might notice a feeling of being gladdened by the warmth or by the bird song. You know, or maybe you feel a reaction to a person you're seeing. That's the aggregate of mental formations. Liking, disliking, wanting. And sometimes maybe you're walking or sitting and you're just resting in awareness that really what's primary for your mindfulness is the knowing faculty itself. You know, and ev- All the other things are happening, but you're really giving most attention to the knowing. So then that's mindfulness of the fifth aggregate of consciousness. So in this way of practice, there's no particular order you know, to how they appear, we're just open to whatever it is that spontaneously becomes most predominant. And this is right view as the wisdom factor. It's simply illuminating what is most predominant, what comes into the foreground in each moment. And we see its impermanent selfless nature. In one discourse, the Buddha said there are two conditions for the arising of right view. And again, just remember when he said he saw no factor so potent for the happiness of beings as right view. So he said there are two conditions for the arising of right view. The voice of another... And wise attention so you've been hearing the voice of another the wise attention is up to you